This is KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. It's time for Issues and Ideas, a show that features a wide variety of local voices sharing their thoughts and perspectives. We'll learn about a night of politics for students at Central Coast New Tech High School in Napomo. I feel confident in the 2024 election because I know that our generation is working to become more educated, and so I feel like that election will have a lot of power. Also, a Morro Bay woman won the first season of the new PBS show Great American Recipe. Cooks from different parts of the United States come together and cook our family recipes, and we talk about why they're special. These stories and more coming up on Issues and Ideas. Good afternoon. It's Monday, November 21st, 2022. I'm Carol Tangeman. Each month, KCBX contributor Stu Soren explores a topic related to the effects of climate change here on the Central Coast. Today's topic, water. Here's Stu Soren. Climate change is affecting water access for people around the world, causing more severe droughts and floods. Increased global temperatures are one of the main contributors to this problem. Our central coast is not spared, and today we will continue to explore these effects, specifically related to our supply and demand for water. Joining me today is Courtney Howard, Water Resources Division Manager for the County of San Luis Obispo. Welcome, Courtney. Happy to have you here today. Thank you. Always love an opportunity to talk about water. Oh, great. Again, we're pleased to have you. Courtney, before we get into the county's role in water management, what are the county's sources of water? And as we go through them, can you discuss their viability? Our county is heavily reliant on groundwater. So that's water found beneath the surface, typically accessed via a groundwater well that's drilled by a qualified well driller. And about 88% of our water demand is met by groundwater throughout the county. And when you think about groundwater, there's two different ways that groundwater exists under the ground. There are what are called groundwater basins, where it's basically a bowl. You have defined sides and a defined bottom, and it's usually kind of a bedrock formation that can hold the water, and you can quantify it if you have enough wells, and there's different technologies to assess the volume of water and conditions in that groundwater, defined groundwater basin. And the state uh, defines where we have those basins in the state. And if you're not in one of those defined groundwater basins, then you're in kind of what we call fractured rock areas, where it's kind of hit and miss, where you can find pockets of water uh, throughout the county. And so that's the two ways we describe groundwater in our county. And the groundwater is in different states of health, depending on where you are. If there is a large concentration of demand where we have communities and agriculture, then some of those basins are more stressed and some are experiencing what we call overdraft, where the pumping is exceeding the annual recharge from rainfall and other sources. But in other areas, the demand is not as high and you have stable groundwater levels. And then throughout the rest of the county in the fractured rock areas, it's really hard to have enough data to understand how those fractured rock formations are interconnected. So we don't have as much of an understanding of how the fractured rock areas work. And it can be really hit and miss where you can find water. And that's where you see a lot of our rural communities and um, more spread out uh, irrigation demands. Okay, so you said 88% of the county's water comes from basically groundwater basins or fractured rock. Mm -hmm. The other 12%? 
surface water sources. We have some local reservoirs. We have uh, access to water from Lake Nasimeno. Some of our communities have access to Lopez Lake. And Salinas Reservoir, or Santa Margarita Lake, as it's commonly known, that is a source of supply for the city of San Luis Obispo. We also have Whale Rock Reservoir, which serves several communities, Cayucas, and then in inland uh, in and around the city of San Luis Obispo. So those are our four main uh, surface water reservoirs. And then there's also a small percentage of recycled water. Two of our communities have direct delivery of recycled water, and recycled water is where you treat wastewater to a, a standard where you can use it for irrigation. And then a lot of our wastewater systems also treat to a point that they can discharge into groundwater basins and streams. And so that's a kind of a component of the balance of, of groundwater and stream flow that you uh, would see in our groundwater basins and in our creeks. So as we talk about 88% of the, the county's water coming from groundwater basins and fractured rock, is there a measuring stick? Is there a way to tell how, I mean, obviously you said there, there's an overdraw going on now. Can you look into the future and pro- make projections? Yes, we um, develop groundwater models. It's a computer model. And if you have been taking groundwater level measurements over time, and you can develop a picture basically based on uh, what you find out when you drill a well. So we have lots of wells that have been drilled and they produce what's called a um, well driller's log where they index the different types of soils at the different uh, levels. So you kind of know where you have clay layers, which are kind of a barrier to water flow and where you have sand and gravel, which is those uh, areas that you do find water. And so from all that information, uh, hydrogeologists are able to create a um, computer model of what the basin looks like. And then if you're measuring the levels over time, then you can kind of calibrate that computer model and input current levels and demands to make sure what the computer model says matches what you're measuring in the field. And then you feel a certain level of confidence to be able to say, well, what if we have this much demand in the future? or this much less rainfall in the future, how does the behavior of the basin change? Will we still be in okay shape, or are we looking like we might have a problem now or in the future? And if you brought up those results today, are we going to have a problem in the future based upon what's going on now? Certain basins are already having a problem. Um, Our Paso Robles groundwater basin and the Kuyama groundwater basin are designated as in critical condition of overdraft uh, by the state. And so they had to submit their groundwater sustainability plans in 2020. And again, this is in accordance with the new state law, the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, that said that high and medium priority basins throughout California, uh, as designated by the state, are required to form groundwater sustainability agencies, one or more, that overlie the basin and are required to develop these sustainability plans. And in the plan, it says, you know, what are the conditions now and what are the conditions in the future? And if there are, and you set certain sustainability criteria, like you set how you want your groundwater levels to be stable. And if you're not meeting that target, then you need to say, uh, what project and management actions are you gonna take to to bring it back into sustainability and, and meet those metrics? 
and those metrics are in place now and, and are being enforced at this time? So they have submitted their plans to the state, um, all the high and medium priority basins, and they're awaiting final state approval. But in the meantime, they are expanding the monitoring networks, and they've received some grants and are getting going on recycled water projects and other, other measures that are in their plans. So, Courtney, again, let's talk about the viability of those groundwater basins. Can you make projections? Can you look forward and say, uh, obviously, some of these basins are in critical conditions now. Are we? Do we have water for a few more years, or do we have situations we're going to have to deal with much more quickly? Yeah, and the basins where they are already exceeding, um, you know, the recharge of of the basin. They're, they do need to start taking steps, um, and so there's a lot of focus on um, using recycled water from the communities to offset the agricultural pumping. That's a big focus. And then to do more of a pumping reduction program, you have to go through a, a pretty significant process to develop all the rules of how that would work. So they will need to start developing that also over the next several years. Okay, and we know that Lopez Lake, Nacimiento, we know a lot of those are in trouble already. We're looking at a potential third La Nina in a row, which is projecting for less rainfall. So are we putting measures in place then to protect what we have from our reservoirs and lakes? Yes, and each one's a little bit different. So with Lake Nacimiento, back in the 60s, the Monterey County actually wanted to build that reservoir in order to recharge the groundwater basin going north because there's a lot of agriculture in the Salinas Valley area. And so when they negotiated with the county of San Luis Obispo, um, there was a reservation of about 17,500 acre feet of water uh, set aside for San Luis Obispo County. And we didn't need it until the 2000s. And that's when uh, communities in our county came together and said, okay, we're ready. We need the water. Let's build the pipeline. And didn't take an allocation from Lake Nasmiano. And the way the agreement was set up is that basically the Monterey County side can only take it down to a certain level, and then they have to stop their releases for agricultural recharge. And the San Luis Obispo County gets that um, other amount. So it's pretty secure in terms of the way the contract works. And Nassimiano, when it does rain, since there's a lot of rocky slopes along the edge, it is responsive to rainfall. So I'd say Lake Nassimiano is one of our more secure reservoir sources for San Luis Obispo County. Excellent. And then Lopez, on the other hand, is not as steep and rocky slopes. And so we really need some consistent rainfall and consistent storms so that it saturates and then can run off. So if you look at Lopez Lake response to rainfall, you really do need those good storms. And that's where we're a little bit more concerned. If you're just joining us, this is KCBX Public Radio. I'm Stu Sorn, and my guest today is Courtney Howard, Water Resources Division Manager for the County of San Luis Obispo. Does the county have a role in allocating water to the various communities? When it comes to the wholesale water supply projects like Lake Nasmiano allocations, like Lopez Lake allocations. I haven't mentioned state water yet. We're also a participant in the state water system that comes from the north in California and through the south. And in the 90s, the county um, built a pipeline in cooperation with the county of Santa Barbara to bring our allocation to various communities in our county. So back in um, 
the 60s when a lot of these uh, projects were initiated. As a county, we secured a certain amount. And then when communities came forward saying we would like to use that water, then the allocations from that total amount were set. For example, if we had 17,500 acre feet of an allocation to our county from the Nasmiano uh, Lake project, then the various communities have certain portions of that 17,000 acre feet. Okay. Can we go back to state water for a minute? State water is supplied, and I'm understanding the counties and the areas are only getting a fraction of what they're actually requesting from the state. Is that correct? Yes, the state has a model, and it, it uses their computer model to look at the snowpack and how much it, the rain fell. And so there's an allocation to the various contractors for state water. And in any given year, depending on the snowpack and the rainfall, the state allocates a certain percentage to each of those contractors. So in wet years, they can get up to 100% of what they've been allocated contractually. In dry years, such as what we're facing now, uh, the models show we can, they can only sustainably provide 5% of allocations this year. So the county, in this kind of a situation with the drought that we've got going on, the counties are really pretty much dependent upon what we have within our, our specific geographic area. Yes. Or the rainfall that we get in our specific geographic area. Yes. Got it. So does the county have any control over groundwater used commercially, for whether it's the farming or wine industry or golf courses? Is there controls in place for that? It can uh, develop an ordinance for land use management purposes. For example, in our Paso Robles groundwater basin, um, when the condition showed that pumping was exceeding the long-term annual recharge, the board uh, implemented an ordinance that said, okay, if you haven't been irrigating and you want to irrigate in order to keep it neutral, you need to go find someone to stop irrigating and then you can start irrigating. So that's an example of the county using its land use authority to kind of put a pause on additional demand. And so at the time, they were also looking at the groundwater management program that was being developed under the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. So its land use authority um, needs to kind of coordinate with other jurisdictions' water management authority. Can the county actually control the amount of water that individual farmers or commercial operators could be using? As a county, we've become a groundwater sustainability agency, and groundwater sustainability agencies do have the authority to implement a program to regulate pumping. So they can control the actual amount of water that a specific farmer or specific winery may use. If an ordinance is developed and adopted under its groundwater sustainability agency authorities. Okay. Are these industries, as you work within the, the, the county itself, and you're obviously working with, it, with farmers, et cetera, are, are the industries doing anything to start um, saving water or using less water? I believe so. There's um, resource conservation districts out there that do a mobile lab program where they'll go around to different farms and help them tune up their, their irrigation systems. Um, I know there's some, some agricultural folks out there that are kind of spreading the word about their best practices. I know there's a sustainability and practice program. And in parallel with that, they're also looking at 
projects. So they're looking at ways to farm that will help slow the flow and help the water percolate uh, into the groundwater basin, as an example. They're also talking to uh, municipalities that have wastewater plants and are going to generate recycled water that could be delivered to farms in lieu of them pumping groundwater. They're kind of tackling it from both sides in terms of getting more efficient and also finding other sources of supply. In looking for new sources of water, is the county involved in that? I know, for instance, we just spoke with um, South County. They've developed uh, Central Coast Blue, which is basically a recycled water project. Is the county looking at projects such as that? Yeah, we just kicked off a planning effort to look at desalinization, so taking ocean water and um, treating it to drinking water standards. And it'll take a while. We need to vet all of the issues around doing a desal facility, including where you would site one, uh, who would take the water, uh, what do you do with the brine, which is the, you know, the, the outcome of, of treating the water, um, how do you deal with the energy and the cost of doing such a facility. So we've just got authorization from our board to start looking at options around desalinization. And if in a perfect world, if a desalination plant was indeed the this the right answer, what kind of time frame are we talking about for that? It could be upwards of 20 to 30 years. Oh, my. Yes. Um, first, just vetting all the options and then getting up to a point of need. And really, we're still working on optimizing the use of our existing resources. How can we get more efficient with our use of groundwater? How can we put all our recycled water to use? How can we make sure that we're using our reservoirs as efficiently as possible? Um, and while we're, you know, in the process of optimizing that, um, planning ahead, you know, if our rainfall patterns aren't like they used to be going forward, then we'll need to replace that lost water. And is desal the right way to go with that? And then there's also housing demands and how that might increase in the future. And you'll, that, you would need like a steady source of supply rather than a fluctuating supply to serve those needs. So big picture, is the county in okay condition for water for, for the foreseeable future? I think if we can get the resources we do have put to better use, I think we'll be in better shape. I don't know if it goes all the way, though. I think we do need some level of increased water use efficiency and demand management to go along with that until we can do something like desal to add to our water portfolio. What would you say to the residents in our communities to help ensure that water is available in the future? Conserve. Yes, <laughs> definitely do as best we can to use water as efficiently as we can. I think um, just staying informed about water issues, I know it can be kind of complex. <laughs> just know that people are out there working really hard to try to find solutions. Um, so kind of balancing the demand management and the supply enhancement. And if someone wants to get involved, if they, if they want to be part of the county or if they want to get involved, whether it be conservation, how can they do that? We have a lot of information at our website, slowcountywater.org, which can take you in whatever direction you want to go. If you want to learn more about groundwater management, there's a link to our groundwater sustainability department. And there's also the Water Resources Advisory Committee. You can get on their email list and join in on those meetings. They're public meetings. All of our projects, we typically have a stakeholder engagement component. So if you want to follow desalinization and how that planning effort goes, you can join that email list and get updates as we discover things along the way. 
Great. We can probably post that link on our on our website. Definitely. Excellent. Thank you. Is there anything else you'd like to add? We get together monthly. We call it a water resources super team and just kind of have a round table. It involves um, our environmental health division. They're responsible for small water systems throughout our county and making sure they're, they're okay. And they also have individual well resources for private well owners, best practices for how to make sure your well is maintained and you check your water quality. We also have our groundwater sustainability department. It was a new department formed to implement with the other groundwater sustainability agencies the plans that were developed for managing those high and medium priority basins. So that's another key department in our county that we coordinate with. Excellent. This is KCBX Public Radio. I'm Stu Sorn, and my guest today is Courtney Howard, Water Resources Division Manager for the County of San Luis Obispo. Juniors at Central Coast New Tech High School in Napomo are preparing for a night of politics on December 1st. Students have created political parties based on policies important to them, and they hope to get your vote. Contributor Beth Thornton visited the school to hear more about the event. This is Beth Thornton. I'm at New Tech High School in Napomo, California, talking with students about an upcoming event where they will present new ideas for our country's politics. Let's start with introductions. I'm Ryan James. I teach English at New Tech High School to all the juniors. Hello, I am Cole Gary, and I am a junior at uh, CCNTH. Hello, I'm Layla Zavala, and I'm also a junior here at New Tech. I will refer to you as Mr. James throughout, if that's okay. I know that's what the students call you. So describe New Tech High briefly. Um, how many students are here, and what, what is the mission of the school? Yeah, New Tech High School is a small public school's choice, so anyone can come here from any county or any district, but we're part of Lucia Mar Unified School District. Um, I'd say what makes us unique is our size. We're relatively small, about 250 kids, and we are a project-based school, which means that this project, Salon Night, is a great example of how the kids are learning all these skills and getting all this knowledge, but it's really for a a larger connection to society, not just a, a Scantron test or a multiple choice test. It's a, a real world skill that they're gonna have to use later in life. And then also our culture is very different too, I would say that we, um, we're very inclusive and very much of a family. I think being a small community makes us um, more of a family atmosphere. And so very tight knit staff, very tight knit student body by the time the kids graduate. It's a really cool environment. Each year you do a special project around politics with your students. Tell us about the project and why it is specifically assigned during the junior year. So politics, I think from my first year here, eight years ago, was, it was hard to talk about politics with people um, in different, with different backgrounds, different perspectives. And so my co-teacher at the time, we really thought we wanted to give the kids a chance to teach the public that it's okay to talk about politics. And to do that, we had to kind of remove the words Republican and Democrat from the whole conversation because there's so much baggage and stereotypes associated with those two words. And so the kids really wrestle through policies instead of those political terms, which makes the conversations, conversations more rich. And then as far as juniors, um, as they get to be this age, we want to get them off campus and in front of more adults as they're applying for jobs and trying to get those soft skills that are gonna give them success later in life. 
they can drive most of them at this point. Um, and so they're itching, I think, for independence. And this project really fits that too because they can share what they think about the government. They're gonna be voting in a year or two. Um, so it's, it just matches up really well with where they're at developmentally and also with the curriculum for government as well. Is the idea behind the project to encourage new ideas and new platforms? Well, as an example, um, someone's stance on abortion shouldn't determine their political party. Like, we have that assumption, or their stance on guns shouldn't determine their political party. So those, aren't, those issues aren't in this project at all. It's more like, do you think the government should be a federal government or more of a local government? Was it a policy question? Or do you think the military should engage for this reason or for that reason or not at all? And, and so each issue is their political platform instead of saying, well, you think this about this one hot button topic and so now I know everything about you. You can't really do that in this course. And then we think that that's how the world should operate more so to have an actual conversation instead of assuming about each other. The students break into groups. Um, how are the groups formed? And then from there, do you give them guidelines? Do you give them direction? Uh, so our groups happen very organically. Uh, we spent two or three weeks at the beginning of the project walking the kids through a series of about six or seven questions that would kind of give them a sense of their profile politically, I would say. And then at the end of those two weeks, we just had a couple days in a row of them having to figure out who in the class matched up the best with them. Um, and there was some compromise in there, and there's, it's kind of a messy process, but it's very authentic, and the kids are really trying to find places that they can um, engage their whole thought process with instead of like following their friends or... Layla and Cole, what was your first reaction to this assignment? For me, as a young student who doesn't spend a lot of time researching and involving myself in current day politics, I was excited to figure out like my own beliefs and how I would back them up with research and evidence, um, which is what we are assigned to do. And so I get sort of nervous talking about politics because I don't feel like I'm experienced enough um, to talk about them, but I hoped that this project would be able to um, encourage me to do so, to do the research, but also to feel more confident in like what I believe. Coming into this project, I also didn't really know much about politics, especially um, like with the uh, midterms coming up, I didn't really know uh, many of the candidates, but my main goal was just trying to see how my political beliefs were different than my parents. Because I know a lot of people tend to instantly um, kind of vote with who their parents say they should, but I wanted to really see what I believed in and not just follow what they thought. This is Beth Thornton. I'm talking with students Layla and Cole from New Tech High School about discovering their own voice in politics. How much time were you given to do the project? And you know, talk a little bit about finding your group. So we started a couple weeks ago, I would say, and we have till um, around the beginning of December, which is a, a very decent amount of time. The Like Mr. James had mentioned, the groups were formed with um, discovering your own beliefs and people who matched up with you. And for, for me, it was really interesting because like I said, I wasn't confident in what I knew about politics. And so it was hard for me to explore what I believed in the certain ideas I believed. But I found that as I began to like learn about them and also like about my fundamental beliefs and values, I became more confident in what I believed and was able to like talk about 
what that with other ki- students and I think that um, that process was really cool because I think we all were able to sit in the group and confidently but also like safely talk about our beliefs yeah finding my group was actually uh, different than most people because when we actually started the project and just learning about how politics worked it it would, I, I figured out it was actually one of my uh, like biggest passions. Like I really wanted to pursue it outside of school. So I ended up going and doing a ton of research on different policies and different people within our government currently and what they believed. And I just compared and contrasted what I thought. So my, my knowledge was, I would say, a little bit more in-depth with like how the current uh, political system is. So what I did was I just tried to base what I thought uh, and just find teammates who I thought uh, would like fit near what my beliefs were. So I'm wondering when you're, when you're doing your research, that sounds like a big part of it, do you have experience doing research where you're not going to uh, fall into misinformation and um, propaganda and all kinds of other things? I mean, is that part of this training is to do research and um, become media literate in that way? Freshman year, sophomore year, year and junior year we're taking through a lesson um, about how to find credible sources and I've used that with me since the very first time it was taught to me freshman year and so um, with that being repeated the more we do research the more confident I feel in the research and evidence that I find and I think that it's also heavily like emphasized to do the things to check that your sources are um, reliable and credible and so I think that the juniors um, are capable of finding those sources I think we are because of what we've been taught in previous years and in this year as well yeah I 100% agree Um, but I will say that when you look at like our current political landscape I tend to notice that the uh, news agencies they are very clear-cut in what they believe and they will only cover specific things so it was very easy for certain people that um, might like not know as much they could like follow certain news sources and uh, you know fall into what would be generally considered uh, misinformation but as Layla mentioned just through years of finding research and um, having training through the school it was pretty we could find specific evidence that would back us up that was generally uh, considered uh, good. Great. That's great to hear that it's part of your curriculum throughout the four years. You're both under 18, so you have not voted yet. And your next big election will be in 2024. How do you feel about that? Are you excited to to participate? Um, do you think that you will stay involved with politics once you leave high school? I can just speak um, from the the elections that just happened, I was really excited to see the amount of Gen Z that was participating in. I felt like it gave me a lot of confidence, um, and I'm excited to like do my research and figure out like like I said like my beliefs, which I've already pretty much established through this project. Um, but continue learning about them and continue learning about the representatives that align with them as well. And so I feel confident in the 2024 election because I know that our generation is working to become more educated. And so I feel like that election will have a lot of power. I would say for me, I'm a huge fan of our political system. I actually see it as a future career path. I don't discuss it much because of the connotation that comes with it. But I would say continuing my my learning of politics will definitely help with my decisions. I would say I definitely want to get more into local government because we do talk about that in class a lot. Seeing um, city council members come in, we actually had the 
the mayor of Grover Beach come in and it was really insightful for him to come in and basically talked about what he ran on and the principles that he showed to his constituents and then also his priorities with, uh, within his area. This is Beth Thornton. I'm at New Tech High School with teacher Ryan James and two of his students where they are preparing for a salon event where students will present new ideas for political platforms. Salon night will be a, a convention of sorts where you have the 15 or so political parties from our school that are set up in a large room and then simultaneously every group is trying to lobby for and get the votes of the parents who come that night and the, the different elected officials that come that night as well. And so then it's a competition to get the most votes um, and they're basically trying to pitch individually or as a group and steal people away and make sure that they get um, all the people that they can to authentically choose their party. Okay, final thoughts and inviting the community to the event. How can people participate? Where can they find more information? Yeah, final thoughts. Um, a quote that's always stuck with me was the founding fathers that said that they were terrified of a two-party system taking over the country. And if you look at other countries, have many parties, there's dozens of parties to pick from, and for some reason we're just like narrowed on to these two right now, and I think it's, I'm hoping to plant seeds that we can have multiple parties. So that's kind of a why behind the project, but, so this event is free for everyone, it's all ages. The voting age is 12 at our event, so anyone can vote that's, that's basically tall enough to get to the table. It is December 1st at the South County Regional Center at, from 6 to 8 p.m and it's gonna be a blast. If you've not been before, um, it's usually very inspiring and challenging at the same time to see the kids talk about what they believe and to, as the students have said, just like dedicating themselves to justifying why they think what they do and um, having some evidence to back it up. It's refreshing. Mm -hmm. I'm very impressed. Good luck. Thank you so much for talking with me. Thank, yeah, you. thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Beth Thornton for Issues and Ideas. And finally, Father Ian is playing with food. To discover the melting pot of dishes this country has to offer, we have invited 10 talented home cooks from regions across the United States. Don't touch that dial. To You're in the right place. This is KCBX Central Coast Public Radio, and I'm Father Ian Dellinger, and I'm playing with food. Our doors are open, and everyone's invited. Welcome to the Great American Recipe. Today's segment is very special because we have a celebrity on Playing With Food. PBS broadcast a new cooking show called Great American Recipe. Ten home cooks shared themselves, their recipes, and their families with all of America for the judges. At the end of each episode, one contestant went home. One of those ten contestants just happened to be from the Central Coast. So ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together for Morro Bay resident and celebrity chef Sylvia Martinez from Great American Recipe. I'm Silvia Martinez, and I am here to cook some pozole with Father Ian. What makes this pozole special? Okay, this is green pozole. When I was growing up, pozole for me was red with pork. And that's a traditional pozole that a lot of people know in Mexico. But my mom decided to make a lighter version. So she decided to change the pork for chicken and the red sauce, which is usually made with dried chiles, to tomatillo salsa. It's lighter, it's brighter. It has the acidity of the tomatillos and the chicken. It's been one of my favorite ones. That's great. 
And there's another very special reason that you're here though too. Yes, I was part of a new PBS food competition called The Great American Recipe and I won. <laughs> so, <laughs> I so it was a family friendly, beautiful show where 10 cooks from different parts of United States come together and cook our family recipes. And we talk about why they're special, but also our families and our stories. Fantastic. So we're here to cook Pizzoli from an award-winning TV <laughs> cooking personality. Let's get started. Yeah, so the first thing that we need to do is start cooking the chicken because one of the most important part of Pozole is that broth. You need to have a very flavorful broth. So we always do a whole chicken. I like to use a whole chicken because it has all the bones and it's where you get the flavor. One thing I'm going to recommend for people who make Pozole for the first time Actually make it one day prior to your event or your family gathering because if you do it one day before, that broth gets really flavorful. Making this at home with the recipe that I have in the blog, it takes one and a half hours. Okay. When you have done it multiple times, it can take more than that if you're doing it for the first time. For the show, I had one and a half hours to make it and I wanted to make it. It was one of the dishes that I decided that it didn't matter where I had to put it somewhere because it's my family's most precious recipe. I had to do what I'm doing with you today, which is using two pots, separating the chicken in half, so we can make that broth more concentrated faster. You have the chicken and the yes. onion, the hominy yes. and the garlic yes. on the boil. Yes. What's next? So now we're gonna start getting ready with the salsa verde. When the chicken is cooked is when we're gonna add the salsa and it's all the flavor because there is just garlic and onion there. But when we make the salsa, the salsa has the salt, the oregano, tomatillos, onion, and serrano peppers. So I'm gonna ask you how spicy you do like your food. Ooh, I like it Thai hot. Thai hot? <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> so then I can decide how many chiles I'm gonna do. So this was not just a regular cooking show, right? There were some special elements to this. Yes. It was very similar in production to Great mm -hmm. British Bake Off, which here is called something else. Yeah, um, the Great British Baking Show or something yes. like that. It was almost identical in terms of how it was set up and the camera work and all that kind of stuff. I thought that was really interesting. It's not the same production company though, because I looked that mm -hmm. up. What was very different than even Great British Bake Off or any other show was from the very beginning, this was about each of the 10 chefs as a person and where they come from. British Baking Show is one of my favorite, you know, my favorite, well, no, my favorite is the Great American Recipe. <laughs> After the Great American Recipe is the British Baking Show. And yes, I mean, you see the way how the stations are and all that is very similar, but you're right. I don't think I have seen a show like our show where the family stories are so important for it. When the judges critique your dishes, that's one of the things that I consider, how the story makes the whole thing whole, right? Because sometimes you make something that it can be very simple, like Tim Bambi made a macaroni and cheese, which can be very simple for a lot of families. But then you tell the story around it, and then you say, oh, okay, this is a very special mac and cheese. And I think a lot of families have recipes like that. Mm -hmm. They don't need to be recipes that are very complicated. It can be a very simple recipe, but it's the story that makes the whole thing. Right? Even down to the very first recipe. So the very first recipe was you on a plate. How do you see yourself in a plate of food? When the judges 
taste that. It's you in there. It can be your flavors. It can be the way it is. It can be the way you make it. It can be the, the story. I chose chilaquiles for my first dish. And there is a lot of reasons why. <laughs> but I think the first reason that I considered was something that I could do in that amount of time. Second, that it was a dish that I had made multiple times because it would be the first time that I would be cooking on TV. And I wanted to be sure that I wouldn't not gonna mess up that recipe. Also, my family loves chilaquiles. Mm. And also, I make chilaquiles different to how my family in Mexico does them. And I mentioned that in the show, like my family, when you eat chilaquiles, they're like soft, and I like chilaquiles crunchy. And they criticized my chilaquiles because I said, my family in Mexico said that they're not chilaquiles. <laughs> but I said, those are my California chilaquiles, my family chilaquiles. So that was part of the things that I thought about choosing that recipe. And also say, okay, this is me and a plate. Why? Because it has my flavors from Mexico, has my salsa, has crunchiness and the spiciness, and I think a little spicy too. And so I was thinking that was a perfect dish to show to the judges. I love cilantro, and cilantro is what makes salsa verde salsa verde, in my opinion. So I'm going to use the blender now. Right, so we're just going to transfer that. So tomatillos have a lot of water inside. So when I make the salsa for the pozole, I don't put a lot of water, just enough for them to just come together. Because we don't want to water down the broth. You're listening to KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. I'm Father Ian, cooking pozzoli with Sylvia Martinez of Morro Bay, one of the dishes she made on the new PBS show Great American Recipe. As we chopped and stirred, Sylvia explained how she chose recipes and shared some of the secrets of producing a national cooking show. So going back to this idea that the contestants were to show who they were as people, who their families were, what their heritage was... When you were thinking about the recipes, was it difficult? Was it a challenge? Or did it make it easier? Well, definitely was a challenge. When you start thinking about what recipes you're going to show, you need to consider a lot of things, starting for the amount of time that you have to make that recipe. For example, I couldn't make tamales, even though if I wanted. It was just no way that I'm going to risk not having cooked tamales because of the amount of time I have. That was the first thing I considered. And then I had to consider the team. Because as you see, every episode had a different team. And we uh, had to decide what I want to cook that goes with that team. So at some point, I remember having like a big board with a lot of recipes all together and trying to decide how to feed them. Because also, I needed to choose recipes that, first of all, had made a lot of times that my family liked, that it attached to the story that I wanted to tell. So it wasn't as easy as... It seems it wasn't as easy as I thought it would be. But then at the end, I am very glad with the recipes that I chose. I think ones that I chose really show my family history and the person I am and the cook I am. I just cried all the way through. (laughs) Because that kind of thing, you know. I think it's really special because for me, cooking is an extension of who I am. And it brings people together. So now we have our salsa and we're just going to wait. You want to smell it? Mmm, smells really good. It's very fresh. It's very fresh. Very fresh. Uh, so we're just going to wait until the chicken is cooked. And then we're going to dump that salsa in there. 
And the next thing that I usually do is I start preparing my toppings because a good bowl of pozole is not a good bowl of pozole if you don't have all the toppings. And the traditional toppings in my family at least is I put lettuce, radishes, onion, avocado, oregano, and lime juice. How far in advance did you know what the themes were so you could do your menu planning? Part of the casting process, when it's very close to actually flying to start taping the show, they said at the beginning, they said, just to start thinking about recipes that they're important for you, that you make in 60 minutes or on an hour and a half. And then very close to flying there, the general teams, I still at that point don't know the name of the episode, but the general teams, like I knew, for example, that the first day it was me and a plate and then one dish that it will show where I'm from, where I live. It is a lot of planning with a show this magnitude, especially because they need to buy all the ingredients. So very close to flying is when I got the general idea of the team and is when I decide most of my dishes. In the middle of the competition, there was a plot twist. They would say at the beginning, for example, before the first episode, say, okay, you're gonna work on the next three recipes. So you need to plan and think because we need to buy the ingredients. Before that, we were talking to the culinary department and they asked, okay, can you explain this step here? I mean, what are you doing here? So then we knew why, because the next day we're gonna be making other people's recipes. So I think we like it a lot because it was different. It brought something to the show, something people were not expecting. And for me, it was super fun trying to make a recipe that I had never seen in my life. Yeah, and you were the only one who had never experienced the recipe that you were making that was somebody else's, weren't you? No, Because yes. everybody else had some familiarity. Some with familiarity, the, yeah. but I have never seen cacio e pepe, which was my recipe from Dan. I never hear about it. I have never seen it. Because if I knew before, I knew that pepper is pepper. And then I would say, okay, now I understand why it has to be so much pepper. The trouble that I had with that recipe is that I was trying to balance the flavors. And when I read it, I was like, that's a lot of pepper in here. It doesn't make any sense. And then I said, there is a lot of cheese. And that guanciale, which is an ingredient that I had never seen before, it looks like bacon. Is salty, and I was thinking, that much, it's a lot of cheese, and this is salty, it's gonna be salty. So I was just trying to make my own, instead to say, okay, Dan is a great cook, his recipes turn out beautiful, I just need to follow. No, I had to make my own stuff. But I'm gonna say that in terms of execution of the recipe, it was good because I cooked the pasta al dente as they wanted, and that's something that they say that it was on my favor. But it was fun. It was fun to see Nikki, she doesn't like to bake, had to bake a cake. And then Dan making my empanadas. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna check the chicken. It's not ready yet. Once the chicken is ready, you pour the sauce in there and you just need to boil for another 20 minutes and it's done. Here's my big question about these cooking competitions with multiple contestants. Mm -hmm. It's twofold. Like. How soon after plating does it actually get eaten by the judges such that mm -hmm. they could even tell that it was al dente? Because it's going to continue to keep cooking. If you're number 10 that they're tasting, it's going to keep cooking for those 20 minutes or yeah. so. So the food was tasted by the judges immediately. When we played it, we played more than the four dishes that you see on the show. Mm -hmm. I noticed you played it six. Six, yes. Four are the ones that you see when they come and 
do the critique when they come to you or when you present it to them. One of them, the most beautiful one, which is the one that you see when you're talking about it, they show. And then the one that is not as beautiful, they take to the judges just for tasting. They need to taste immediately. It's really minutes between we finish and the judges start tasting that food. Though the first day, that means 10 bites of very widely, very different dif- yes. dishes. So they must have been happy on day eight. I think so. But they only had I, three. Because I was not in the room with them. I'm guessing that they had just to take one or two bites. And then when it's less and less, they can take more bites of it, right? But yeah, that's very important to know so they can really taste the food as it should be. You're listening to Playing With Food on Issues and Ideas here on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. I'm Father Ian helping with the final steps of making pozole with Sylvia, a Moro Bay cook who was on national TV with Great American Recipe on PBS. As the pozole nears completion, Sylvia shares the drama of the final TV cooking segment. Because what I'm going to do now is I'm going to put the salsa. Please don't burn yourself. Yeah, no. I'm going to do this very carefully. Okay. Okay. And you did it perfectly away from you. Yes. So I'm going to uh, pour the green salsa on the broth now. Okay. So see how vibrant green looks right now? Yeah, looks great. As it cooks, it's gonna take more like a military green. And it's when you know it's cooking. Speaking of your sous chef coming along, yes. for your last dish, yes. for the three remaining contestants, mm-hmm. they flew out one person's son, one person's sister, and mm-hmm. your my husband. husband. Yes. Did you know that that was going to happen? No, I had no idea. And my husband keeps telling me, oh, I need to go get the kids. I had to go get the kids from soccer. And I said, okay, goodbye. And he was in a hotel a few miles from me. Mm-hmm. And then he just showed up that day. Because Fu cried. Yes, I did cry too. I was a cry. I cried a lot. Uh, yeah, it was a lot. It was not a dry eye on the set that day. It was a great moment. I was very emotional. And also, it was so great that they were with us, helping us. You know, there is magic in editing. Yeah. But to us, it looked like they came in, uh-huh. you, st- you saw them and started crying, and then you went straight to your station. Is that how it happened? Yes. He didn't no know, time for crying. He didn't know he's going to be cooking. I didn't know that I want to have somebody to help me. So everything you see that the moment that they walk to that door, we didn't know anything. When you see that we're going to organizing each of the three couples, organizing what you're going to do, it's all there because we had no idea. So you have these three final dishes. Yes. Did you have full portions of all three of them? Yes. <laughs> yes. Those we got to eat, I think. I think. When we are eating it, we're talking, and then we don't get to finish everything. Except for my tres leches cake. I finished that. I said, I'm going to finish that cake. I really like the banquets because then it's the only time you get to try the other people's food. And I think that was just beautiful. It's a little bit of, you know, a taste of what the judges get to do. A taste of your colleague. Because, you know, we talk about it on the days that we went back to the hotel and it was enough time for us to have dinner together. We would talk about, what are you cooking tomorrow? But of course, when you get in the kitchen and you, you're focused on your own food, 
and you don't get to see. So actually watching the show was so beautiful for me because it was the very first time that I got to see what they really made and the story. And now you have your own stories with each other. Yes, we are a very tight group. We text every day. We keep talking about food, what's happening with our lives. Because now there is a cookbook. I get to make those recipes then. I'm waiting for this to get cool a little bit, but now it's boiling. See how it's changing the color? Smells really nice. Thank you. Yeah, Yeah. yeah it's so, definitely not bright green anymore. No, so I'm, going, I'm just going to open it now because I want them to get a little bit reduced. So I'm going to let it boil. In the meantime, I'm going to start shredding the chicken. This was not live. So when did you do the filming and when did it go to broadcast? So the filming took place in Virginia in September of 2021 for three weeks. And the show aired on June 24th and, you know, every Friday after that. September, October, yeah, November, like December, January, February, March, April, May, June. That's 10 months I know. that you had to stay quiet. I know. And more than that, because I want to have to stay quiet even longer. To, through the whole run. <laughs> 12, months, 12 months because the last episode aired um, the oh. middle of August. Yes. Wow. I know. And you not only had to stay quiet about what was going on and who got kicked off and all that kind of stuff, yeah. you had to stay quiet about a very big major yes. thing. And what was that major thing? Well, then I won the whole thing. <laughs> I'm the winner. So I'm it was only you kids. and Matt who knew? Yes. Not even our kids. Not even your kids? No. Not even your family in Mexico? Nobody. And not even the seven who weren't there? No. Wow. So you're on this group chat? Yes. And you can't say no. anything for a year? No. To the people you were with and only three of you knew? Yes, that's correct. Oh, that must have been so hard. It was hard. And I need to be very careful, even though when like they interviewed me also before the show aired, because I got a few interviews, I need to be very low-key even con expression on my eyes or with my words. <laughs> I'm going to put the chicken now in the broth very carefully. Okay, can I taste a piece of chicken? You can, even you know, it has no salt, okay? I'm just going to tell you. Okay. Is it okay? Salt. It always comes down to salt. Salt. Yeah, I noticed early on that I needed to add more salt and more spice. After that chilaquiles, I kind of knew. So when I did the tri-tip tacos, I salted a little bit more and they like it better. So I had to learn fast. Okay, so we're almost done, Father Ian. Yay! How do you put this together? Is that what we're gonna do? You're okay. gonna show me how to put it together? Yes. So I'm going to do mine. And okay. then you can see. So you put as little or as, as much lettuce you would like on top of it. And then you spread a little bit of the raw onion. If you like, I know a lot of people don't like raw onion, but then you put two or three slices of radishes in it. Also gives a beautiful color to the plate. Oregano, I usually do this on my hands. Okay. Crush it. And do you always use dried or do you sometimes use fresh? I you always use dried. Then I'm going to put some avocado on top. I like it with a lot of it. And then lime juice and that's it. You serve it with one or two tostadas at the side. And then I squeeze the lime you on squeeze it. Squeeze your lime. 
un buen provecho. Salud. 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 Okay, here I go. I'm going to go for my first taste. Break a piece off. Do I want to get everything in the same bite? Can, yes. Okay, here I go. Mmm. <laughs> really nice. Oh. It was like 85 degrees today. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know what you're making. And when you said, we're going to have pozole, I was like, it's mm. 85 degrees out. But because it's not a red pozole and it's not with pork, you're right. It's much lighter. It's, lighter. it's very light. Mm -hmm. It's like a summer soup. Mm -hmm. So what do you think about the pozole? It's great. I love it. Mm -hmm. I love it. The pozole was delicious, and she was right. It was even better the next day and a month later when I took it out of the freezer on a rainy day. And my time with Sylvia was really special. I've always wanted to know what happens on a national TV cooking show. I've always wanted to be on a national TV cooking show. And by the way, I have, but not here in the UK. She told me so much more than we had time for on this episode of Playing With Food. Sylvia learned a lot about food, love of family and friends, and how to be a better cook from the tips and tricks taught to her by the judges and hosts. She also learned a practical lesson about being a national TV chef. The other thing I'm going to share with you is that if I had to do this over again, which I would do in a heartbeat, I will get two pairs of really good shoes. <laughs> because the amount of time that you're standing is something that I never imagined. And I needed a good pair of shoes. As we discussed at the beginning, Great American Recipe was unlike any other cooking show on TV. And while many winning TV cooks shed a tear for their great achievement, for Sylvia, it was more than just being the best cook. I always kind of tear up every time I think that I'm part of the previous family. You know, I'm an immigrant. I came from Mexico. I just embrace my time here and my culture, my American family. And for me, it's a big deal. I could never imagine to be a national TV in the United States. <laughs> so, <laughs> just trying again. So, I, I, I always tear up about that because I feel very proud of the show and I feel very proud of PBS and doing this not just for us, but for all the families in the United States that the food is just such an important part of, of us as Americans and how we can learn from each other and how we can get inspired by each other. I'm stopping. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that doesn't come with a reality cooking show is a live audience. So, Sylvia, I want to give you one more thing that you didn't get that every winner deserves. A standing ovation. Now, I don't have any more recipes to make. This is it. There can only be one winner. This cook has shown tremendous growth. This person has truly shown that they're capable of telling stories through the plate. The most successful meal and the winner of the Great American Recipe is... Sylvia. I'm an immigrant, okay? English is my second language. I'm always know that I have this accent and I always know that I'm not fully American, even though I feel American. But now my recipes are gonna be in a cookbook. It's just a big deal. Thank you all for joining us on this season of The Great American Recipe. This is KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. Alone in my home studio with no live audience, I'm Father Ian and I'm playing with food. 
You've been listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. Gary Eister composed our theme music. A special thanks to all our guests and contributors this week. I'm Carol Tangeman. Join us each Monday from 1 to 2 in the afternoon for more local stories. You can head to our website to learn more about what you heard today or to listen to past segments, kcbx.org. Thank you.